I'm Liz Logan, and you're listening to Collecting Culture, a podcast about passionate collectors and the objects they love. I was introduced to Tam Kinehoff after I met her niece, who sat next to me recently in a needlepoint class. She mentioned that her aunt collects early Texas art, just as an offhand comment, and I was immediately intrigued because, frankly, I had no idea what that meant. I was picturing realist paintings from the mid-19th century, around the time that Texas became a state in 1845. Of course, then, when I talked to Tam, I found out I was wrong. She explained that the Center for the Advancement and Study of Early Texas Art, which was founded in 2003, defines early Texas art with two criteria. One, it's made by an artist who was born, lived, or worked in the state. And two, it was made more than 40 years prior to the present date. So that's a moving deadline, and that encourages preservation not only of art that's from a century ago or more, but also tons of art from the 20th century. So yes, early Texas art includes the more traditional 19th century paintings that I was originally picturing, but it also includes modern art. In other words, the genre is huge. Tam, who lives in Houston, has been collecting paintings and prints by Texas artists for 25 years. She is an inquisitive collector and a true seeker. After she acquires a piece, she researches the artist, sometimes getting to meet that person. And if the artist is no longer alive, Tam will dive into old correspondence, or she'll call up old newspaper articles on microfiche at the library or she'll sometimes even track down the artist's family members and see if they have artworks hiding in their attics. For Tam, collecting is a way to learn more about where she lives and the fascinating artists of Texas, both past and present. When you talk about Texas, uh, people have a lot of pride when they come from that particular state. Tell me about that and the role that that plays in in collecting Texas art. You know, I think that makes it, um, I think it's, it, it creates a healthy competition for the material. I think it's, when we moved here, it was somewhat hilarious for us because we were driving around East Texas and we would see, literally, I remember calling friends up and saying, okay, we were just driving up on this highway near Beaumont and we saw this giant hot tub hanging outside of a store in the shape of the state of Texas. And there were little stepping stones at the garden shop in the shape of the state of Texas and cookies and everything in the, in the shape of the state of Texas. There was just this wonderful pride but also aggravating, you know, I, I, I don't always share the share politics with everyone I'm surrounded by in Texas. Um, although I've tended to surround myself with people who share my politics, of course, like everybody does, but so Texas can be both aggravating and can, can also just 
produce a lot of affection in me. <laughs> and and also at the same time when we moved here, we were moving to this little corner of Southeast Texas that was right by Louisiana. So Beaumont is has a lot of French influence. I mean, every third name in the phone book is a French name. There's a lot of Cajun culture there. Um, there's great Zydeco music there. There's great food there. There's swamps. It's not what you think of when you think of Texas. So it's this uh, very Gulf Coast, very wet, very the opposite of where we came from in Colorado. We came from this high mountain desert, and we moved down to this very um, warm, interesting, exotic corner of Texas. And I think that for collectors, uh, that creates um, that creates healthy competition, but also an urge to get more knowledge about it because you're proud of it. So you've got collectors who really learn exhaustive amounts about the artists they collect. Um, in some areas in Dallas, for example, I've joked with my friends in Dallas who collect up there. It's a blood sport in, in Dallas collecting some of these Dallas nine regional regionalist artists. They're probably the, some of the more expensive paintings in Texas are the Dallas nine regionalists. And, um, who are they? Tell me who they are. Um, Otis Dozier, um, Jerry Bywaters, uh, William Lester. And what period was that? Um, they were painting in the 30s, 40s, on to the 50s, uh, and even a little later in some cases. A lot of them ended up at the University of Texas in Austin and uh, went on to do uh, painting that was less regionalist looking, but their look, the Dallas nine painters had that very, um, regionalist look of the 1930s and early forties. You know, those paintings that were, Oh, Alexander Hogue is a really great example. And his paintings of the dust bowl, um, are pretty well known even nationally. Um, you know, the, the famous painting where the earth looks like a woman who's been ravaged. Those are some of the Dust Bowl paintings that are just highly dramatic. Um, and those paint, there's not tons of that material around. And and uh, there was a big show before we moved to Texas. There was a big show at the Dallas Museum of Art of those painters, and a book was published. And so those paintings are tough to get, and people really go after that group of painters. One of your recent acquisitions is this gorgeous painting that's a self-portrait by Anna Bell Peck. And she was quite young when she painted it. She was a teenager, right? Yeah, she was 19. Yeah. And and we've since found out that she had she the paintings that we have by her are wonderful. They're really good, but they're not plentiful. They're just a handful. And we've since found out because we've been meeting these people just in the recent weeks of our detective work, um, that she had some mental health issues may have been possibly schizophrenic. Um, so that she didn't, she ended up not having a long painting career and, uh, but, but she had really great talent. So interesting. That is really interesting. Um, it almost looks like um, what I think of as like European expressionism, that painting. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I think it does too. What moved you about it? 
um, you know, it's haunting looking. I, I love art that's about art sometimes. So I really always enjoy paintings that have paintings within paintings. So that was a little captivating for me. But also the expression on her face and just some mysterious elements. You know, her hand in the painting is so graceful and also a little spooky. The whole painting's a little spooky. And, um, and I just think it's really wonderfully expressive, beautifully composed, and uh, interesting. <laughs> and how did you find out what you know about her life? Um, through, and really, I can't uh, claim, I can't claim this research. I'm really good friends with uh, Randy Tibbetts, who's a longtime research librarian at Rice University here in Houston, but who also is a is a collector of really Texas art. And he has done extensive research specifically on Houston artists. And he's encyclopedic about Houston artists. And so um, he's done some research on this artist and knew some real basic things about her. But then recently, another friend of ours um, bought some paintings from a woman who was friends with her friends. You know, there were, um, she was part of a lesbian couple and this other lesbian couple were really close friends of hers. And, and that's how they ended up with the painting. This woman is the um, just kind of adopted friend and heir to to some of these artists. And um, so we talked to her, found out some things. And then Randy, I think, has been doing some more clipping searches. You know, we're just searching the newspapers all the time and searching. Uh, we're sitting in front of microfish machines. <laughs> and one thing that I've found in collecting Texas art, a lot of it was by women. Um, not all of it, and certainly not all the important painters, but a lot of women artists um, may have had really great talent and may have painted some really great paintings, but a lot of them then had to support themselves and they had to have other careers often in teaching. And that really seemed to have cut down on their painting lives. So that, that's kind of a common story that I've seen with other artists that I've collected that, um, you had to be kind of ruthless and sometimes uh, a little well off financially in order to really pursue that um, full-time life of an, of an artist. I guess some things haven't changed. That's still somewhat true. <laughs> yeah, it's still, and women are still underrepresented in the arts, certainly. Um, can you Definitely. give me an example of, I know you sent me some wonderful women artists who you love. Uh, who's, who are you thinking of when you say that? Uh, one that one artist I'm thinking of is Lorene David, and she was she was one of the main reasons that I first started collecting Texas art. I moved to Beaumont, Texas. I started going to estate sales or house sales where you go into somebody's house and you know you everything everything has a price tag on it. And uh, I bought a portfolio of some paintings that I thought looked pretty nice. And, and then occasionally in other sales, I would find prints by this woman, Lorene David. So I started researching her and I found that she was the head of art department in the public schools for many, many years. But a lot of the contemporary artists I was meeting in Beaumont didn't even realize that she had ever done art. But in the 1930s, she had gotten her graduate degree at, at uh, Columbia, even though she was came from Kansas City, Missouri, and then moved to Beaumont, Texas. She got her master's degree in, at Columbia. 
And she was uh, in all of these important shows, including a show at the Metropolitan Museum during the war called Artists for Victory, which was a really important show of the era to be in, and especially for someone who does prints. And she had a print in that show. Um, so she had this career. She showed throughout the South. She showed, for some reason, which I haven't been able to uncover, she her paintings were, were published in magazines in Paris. She had this this major life of art, but then she took over as the head of the school of the schools. And, and from that time on, she could only paint in the summer, all of her paintings, the subjects of her paintings were Provincetown. She would go to the artist colonies on the East coast in the summers. And, uh, she was members, a member of an important print guild here in Texas, but her peers didn't even realize that she had ever been a working artist, you know, and her career took over her life. But she, I think, my theory is that she then influenced uh, with her hiring of serious artists as teachers and with uh, the rigor of her approach, which I heard, I've read quite a bit about and talked to people about. I think she ended up creating a really rich art culture in that town because, because she was a serious artist. And she was so. in Beaumont? And she was in Beaumont, of all places this place in East Texas, but like many places in Texas, there was always money floating around. And so, um, so art could make a way in those, in those places, um, and, and did, and there was always support for the arts in, even in Beaumont. I think another really great woman artist who was really influential here in Houston was Emma Richardson Cherry. And she was born in the 1850s. Um, and she traveled to Paris often, and she was one of the earliest and oldest members of the Art Students League in New York, um, and was friends with, uh, she was the early, one of the earliest members of the Society Anonyme uh, with Man Ray and that whole crowd. So she was, even though she was older by that time, because she was born, I think, in 1856, she always wanted to be a keep abreast of what was modern, you know, that was important to her. And she brought the new back to Texas. She had the first impressionism show in Texas in 1896, um, near Houston. And she brought, she probably brought the first cubist painting to Houston. She painted a cubist painting in, in France, a number of them. Uh, she was aware of cubism very early on, and she always wanted to bring what was new and what was exciting in the art world back to Texas. And when people think of her now, a lot of people just think of her as someone who painted a lot of flower paintings. Well, she could sell flower paintings, little floral arrangement paintings or big ones. And there were times when she was making her primary living for her family off of art. But she had many other interests, and she was influential, and she taught other teachers who then taught younger students who were some of the first abstract painters in Texas. So she also uh, founded organizations that went on to be the organizations that established museums, like the, the Denver Art Museum, the Kansas City Art Museum, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, um, highly influential. So, but, but her longest time was in Houston. She married someone here and she would travel to Paris for many years, but she always came back to Houston. Houston became her main home. Now that we know a little bit about what an amazing life Emma Richardson Cherry had, 
Tell me a little bit about the painting that you have of hers. The Emma Richardson cherry painting that I sent to you, I think is interesting because it's, she was, by that time, she was 60 years old. That was in the 1920s. She painted that painting in France. It's of a, a little bridge in France. And, and yet it's not a traditional painting of a bridge by any means. And you can tell she was looking at people like Marsden Hartley at the time and was interested in modernism at the time. And so I think that's just a really early modernist looking painting by a Texas painter that you might not necessarily associate with modernism. In the second half of our conversation, Tam and I talked about a few more of her favorite artists, the pieces in her collection that she considers masterpieces, and the artworks she regrets missing out on. So then you've gotten to meet some of the artists whose work you collect. Can you tell me a story of someone really interesting, an artist you've gotten to meet who you really enjoyed? One really colorful character uh, artist is Maudie Karen. And she, I met her when we first moved to Texas and she was uh, kind of toward the end of her career and the end of her life. Um, but she, she had shown up on the art scene in Houston in the 1930s. She got a scholarship to study here with some of these young um, abstract artists here in Houston. People don't realize there was abstraction happening so early in Texas, but it was in the 1930s. And so she she was really young. She got a scholarship to study here with a well-known teacher here named Ola McNeil Davidson. And she became friends somehow, I haven't figured out how, with James Johnson Sweeney around that time. She was friends with Margot Jones, who you know went on to become a well-known choreographer they were in this little avant-garde theater group and she became friends with James Johnson Sweeney, who later was the second director of the Guggenheim museum in the 1930s. He was a curator at the, uh, at MoMA and he, um, they exchanged letters all the time and ended up getting investigated by the FBI because, um, because the, they thought that the writing, she was writing this really abstract, way because she'd been really influenced by Gertrude Stein. And so she's writing these weird little letters talking about pook people that she later painted. And she's writing these letters to James Johnson Sweeney and the FBI ends up investigating both of them as a result of the letters. And she was the kind of person who would go to Europe with her friends and have to be restrained from literally dancing on tables. Uh, she dressed, uh, so colorfully, she did a show in Berlin, I think, or in Germany in the 1980s, and she was in her 70s by that time, and she was wearing purple hair and green tights and Mary Jane shoes and some outrageous dress and all of these kind of young people in Germany at the time who were sort of radical-looking were stopped in their tracks by this apparition of this crazy American lady with purple hair. So she was just one of those memorable, outrageous characters. And even though she knew a lot about art, her art almost looks like outsider art. It's primitive. Um, it's, it's spontaneous. And uh, it, it kind of reflects the zany, weird, interesting, delightful personality that she was. She was a character. 
what's a favorite piece of yours that we haven't talked about? I really love this painting by Catherine Green. And it's a painting probably uh, from the Gulf of Mexico of, of fishermen. And it's a 1930s painting. And I just think she's one of these kind of best kept secrets of Texas art. She was in one of the more important early exhibitions, the 1936 Centennial Exhibition. And she, every painting that I've seen by hers is really beautiful and really skilled. She studied in Paris in the 1930s, like some of those ladies did. She came from a well-to-do family, and then her husband died uh, early on in a car accident. So she ended up going into the family timber business and working and kind of getting away from her paintings. And because the family was well-off, the paintings never really traveled outside of the family. So, um, so they never really made it onto the market, but we knew about her from this centennial show and we contacted her family when I was working on a show in the, at the museum in Beaumont. And we went around to all the family members and found all these terrific, wonderful paintings. And the minute the catalog from that show was published, we had people from all over the state wanting to find out how to buy her paintings <laughs> because they were so terrific, but they're just not out on the market. And I think that's just another example of some of those women who ended up not really having a mainstream art career, but who did really quality work. I also want to talk about, because you talked about Maudie Karen, um, and you had sent me something by, I think, do you say his name, Robert Prusser? Yes. And was, were they connected? Because I And I want to talk about that painting, because that is such a beautiful painting of his. Yeah, he, he was something. They both studied with Ola McNeil Davidson. And I think that Prusser and one other artist, maybe Frank Deleshka, who was also in that group, um, I think they funded the scholarship for her, for Maudie. And so, yeah, they were connected. They were all in that artsy group that hung around with Margot Jones, a the theater person, and they painted sets for this little avant-garde uh, avant group, but they also studied with Ola McNeil Davidson. And then Robert Prusser um, showed such early talent. I mean, he was such a little prodigy. From the time he was 17, he was painting these wonderful little paintings, these fantastic abstracts. So Ola McNeil Davidson took her when he was just 17 years old to Chicago where Maholi Naj was teaching at the new Bauhaus and, um, and got him accepted to study at the new Bauhaus. And, um, and Maholi Naj said at the time he couldn't believe someone that age was making those paintings. And he couldn't believe that those paintings were being made in Texas. So Ola McNeil Davidson, the teacher, said, paintings don't come from the highways. They come from the byways or something like that. I mean, she, she, she let him know that you can find great paintings in many out-of-the-way places. And that painting, to me, it seems to look like Kandinsky, in my opinion. I see so It much. looks a lot like Kandinsky. Kandinsky sure. or maybe Miro also. A little bit of Miro I yes, see in there. Yeah. You sent me many photos, which were wonderful. And you sent me a photo of some paintings that were hanging in your kitchen, 
but I want to talk about the ceramic <laughs> paint, the ceramic plates that are around surrounding those paintings because there's just no way we can not talk about them because they were <laughs> totally jumping out of the photo. So what is up with the ceramic plates? Well, that started with my friend, David Lackey, the antique dealer who I'm working for now. David uh, had this wonderful little plate and it had what looked like half peeled hard boiled eggs on it. And he had just gotten an estate in and I was living, we had a townhouse next door to him at the time. And that was kind of his staging area. And I saw that plate and I fell in love with it and bought it. And so being, um, me and being this kind of, I, I w always want to find out about things and I, then I want more of them. Usually, um, I looked on the back, the, the ceramic company was Esta, E-S-T-E, an Italian company. And I started just searching online and I found out that those ceramics were sold by Neiman Marcus and Tiffany in like the early sixties. And there's just a whole category of these wonderful, Trump loy sort of ceramics. And I guess there may be the descendants of 19th, 18th, 17th century Majolica, but they're 20th century. They're much more accessible and affordable. And I like them more, you know, I think they're just really fun. And so since I'm, since I have this bug of collecting, if one is good, 50 are so much better. And so, I just started searching them on eBay. And at that time, you could get them for pretty reasonable cost. Now they're, like many other things, they're a lot more expensive. But I have a whole bunch of them, and I'm crazy about them. It's just one of the collecting categories that I just really love. And always looking for a new one or an interesting one. I rarely buy them anymore, but I like seeing new ones. And I'm trying to infect other people, like my cousin is interested now in maybe collecting some. <laughs> So there are these ceramic plates for people who aren't looking at them. There are th these ceramic plates that have collections of fruits and vegetables that are beautifully colored, obviously. Um, but they they also go so well with your art on the wall there. Like they, it all just seems to work together like these sort of pops of color and it just works. Well, and in the kitchen, you just want to have you know, paintings with food and <laughs> paintings with bright colors. But you know, the thing that I found Liz, when I was um, hanging paintings in this house, because I had, we had a kind of, we called it our beach house only. It was really our city house in Houston and we had our house in Beaumont. So when we moved over here, we were combining two houses full of art. But one thing that I found was when you have so much art, you can make it work. <laughs> you can make it work. I mean, you have your kitchen and you have these plates. You can for sure, if you have a ridiculous number of paintings, find paintings that are going to look great with the plates. It's just how it works. And that's the fun of redecorating. That's right. And that's the fun of, um, that's the fun of collecting, uh, Maybe not at the masterpiece level, although I think I do have a few masterpieces, but that's the fun of collecting a deeply into a category, I would say. Okay. Well, now that you've mentioned that you have a few masterpieces, what are they? Um, I think, and maybe masterpiece is too strong a word, but I do think that our two Broer Utter paintings are really great examples of that group of artists and particular of his paintings. Um, that was a group of artists in Fort Worth. And again, they were this kind of, 
the regionalists were painting that kind of mainstream at the time, American regionalist style. And these Fort Worth artists were a lot more out there. They were heavier partiers. They were um, more avant-garde. I think they were a little wild. They traveled to New York a lot. And they were painting this kind of more surrealist looking stuff. And I, I think Broer Utter was one of the best of that group of painters. And I think these paintings of these weird creatures that he was doing in the 1940s are just a really wonderful example of his work. And I, I really, I really enjoy them. I really love them. They're super creepy and super fun. They kind of remind me of Dali. Uh, they also remind me of in the mu- movie Beetlejuice, like when the sculptures attack them. <laughs> it that That's what they look like. They look like those sculptures. I can see that. I can see that. Sure. They're very... Uh, they're very mobile. They look like they could move around on the on the plane of the painting. Sure. So let's also talk about your other collections that aren't ceramic, beautiful plates uh, or paintings, because you also love quilts and you love textiles. Tell me a little bit about that. I do love textiles. In fact, um, you had said as a possible question, if you didn't collect paintings, what would you collect? I really will always regret that I didn't start collecting um, textiles from Uzbekistan just ages ago. And I have a few, you know, ecot fabrics and and just wonderful textiles from that part of the world. But um, I'm a sucker for textiles. Well, we'll have to check it out. So at the end of our podcast, we want people to do this collecting culture questionnaire uh, the first question is, if you could collect anything, uh, what would it be besides what you already collect? You already answered that. Well, but I have another one. I have, I, I really, I think my number one thing would probably be, I wish I had started 40 years ago collecting Kachina dolls. Or maybe even before I was born, I would have needed to start. But those just absolutely knock me out. They just, every time I see them, like on my list of things I would steal first from the Museum of Fine Arts Houston it's the Kachina dolls. So just tossing that out there. And then, okay, so if you could live in a different time, when would that be? I think I would want to live at no time in the past. I would want to live maybe 50 or 75 years into the future. I would want to know what things have held up, what things people are collecting then, what things were absolutely gone from the collecting universe, what things... Um, completely lost their spark or lost their glamour. I just think I'm a. I, I just think I'm someone who would want to live in the future. I've never been someone who thought, oh, even though I collected all these antiques, I never thought, oh, I'd love to live in the Edwardian era or the Victorian era. I never had those thoughts. Even Art Deco, I love early modernist stuff. Never wanted to live in 1920s Paris. So. What's a collecting mishap you've had or something you bought that you regret? My collecting mishaps are always on the side of things I wish I had bought. I can't think, even things that I don't love as much as when I bought them, I still learned a lot from buying them. So I think my mistakes have been, I should have bought a wonderful, abstract, huge Richard Stout painting um, 10 years ago, the first time I ever looked at one, or I should have bought a Ruth Euler earth rhythms painting when I had a chance at about half the price they are now. 
um, I think those are my mishaps, things that got away, things that I didn't buy. And not maybe not recognizing genius when you had it just right in front of you. Right. Or not recognizing a bargain, you know, not recognizing. I mean, you're always pushing the limits of what you want to spend. Um, maybe just not pushing him quite far enough, even when I knew that the the painting was great. So, and everybody has those mishaps who's a collector, I think, but mine are more on that side than the, the other side. Not buyer's remorse, but not buying remorse. Right, exactly. <laughs> The music and editing for this podcast was provided by my co-producer, my brother, Andrew Logan. More of his work can be found at logansound.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate us in your podcast app of choice, and tell your friends. For more photos and details from this and our other episodes, visit collectingculturepodcast.com or show us your own collection by tagging Collecting Culture Podcast on Instagram. We'll be back next month with another collector.